Amen. Please be seated. How many just couldn't wait to get here to hear the singing or participate in the singing one more time? It's live in here. In fact, it's just a touch too live. So we're going to have to take a few measures to hopefully bring the reverberance down a little bit because it can be difficult to listen to, but not too much. It's better to be too reverberant and have to bring some, uh, a little bit of uh, deadening to it so that we can uh, hear speaking also. So just be aware that we're working on that. Slowly but surely, we want to do it just right to make sure that we retain the effect of uh, the architecture itself to help us sing, but also that speaking would be uh, as clear as possible. This morning, it's my great... Uh, privilege to open the Word of God to you, to us together, starting a new study, the book of Titus. Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Titus. I have the verses there printed for you on your outline. Titus, small book, is an important book because it is written to a, a pastor, one who has been sent to a place to set a church in right order. It was a new church uh, that needed much direction, and so Paul writes to Titus that he might have the counsel he needs to see the church built up, function well, according to God's precepts. Uh, There's Titus and there's Timothy also, another young pastor at Ephesus. Titus was at Crete, which is the southernmost island in Greece, whereas Timothy, another young pastor, found himself in Ephesus. And 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus together are considered the pastoral epistles because they help churches with order. Uh, They're written to churches that are fledgling churches. We are not a fledgling church any longer. But we go through all these new beginnings, which are exciting. And I think it's at such times as this that we should again look at a pastoral epistle and see how it is that the church might rightly be ordered, how it must follow what God directs, what is true and then what to do, doctrine and duty. Doctrine being that body of truth that God reveals, duty, what we do in light of the truth. What is true and what we do, and that's what we have before us in this book. Titus himself, we only know a little bit about. We know he was near and dear to Paul. Uh, He is referred to in our opening verses as my true child in a common faith. This is how Paul addresses Titus. It is believed by most that Paul personally led Titus to faith in Christ. Titus became then a traveling companion of Paul. We read of him Uh, Through 2 Corinthians, it seems as though Titus was sent by Paul to Corinth to deliver a difficult letter, one we don't have anymore. In 2 Corinthians, we read about Titus' successful visit and the people's repentance. It's a joyful letter. And so we know Titus was sent out by Paul, not only to Corinth, but also we know to Crete eventually, that's the setting for this book, but also at the end of his life, Nicopolis, and then also Jerusalem. He was with Paul in Jerusalem when they had this great council. In fact, kind of humorously, one of my favorite stories that I want to see on the videotape in heaven is at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. What happened is the apostles got together to discover or to be sure and clear about what the gospel was because Jews in various places were saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so there was Titus and Timothy. Now Timothy, who was Jewish by descent but wasn't circumcised, had to be circumcised as an adult in order to minister to the Jews. So there's Titus, at, who doesn't, it doesn't say this, I'm saying this is what the video is going to show us, see. Titus is there while the elders and the apostles are debating over whether Titus ought to be circumcised or not. That's the video I want to see is Titus's look. <laughs> Titus saying, going back and forth like in, as it works out. And we find in Galatians that he was not because that would have been a stumbling block and it would have actually taught people that you had to add something to faith in Christ. 
And so Titus serves as this person, this Gentile, this Greek, who's close to Paul, traveled with him, became Paul's emissary, and a pastor for a time at this church in Crete. What is true and what to do? That's what we will learn as we study Titus together. Let's be introduced to this book by the opening salutation of Paul, the first four verses of God's holy, inspired word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our hearts collectively as a church, that they would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We want you to receive glory through the lives you are changing here today, starting right here, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul's ministry is exciting when you look at what happened to him from the time of the road to Damascus, getting knocked off his horse, seeing this light, being blind for a time, spending several years after that preparing uh, to transfer all his Old Testament knowledge into New Testament fulfillment in Christ, and going forth and uh, starting churches. But along the way, Paul encountered all manner of persecution and trial. Think of the things he went through. Persecuted by people everywhere he went. He had mockers. He had angry mobs after him. He got run out of town many times. He had shipwrecks. He was stoned once. Uh, It's very difficult to be stoned and left for dead and still get up and go on in the ministry like he did. Uh, He had a thorn in the flesh, which we're not exactly sure what it was, but he wasn't ever relieved of it. So he had consistent pain and suffering throughout his ministry, beatings, imprisonments. You name it, he had it. Even an evil emperor supposedly brought an end to his life, as history seems to speak. What would keep a man like this going through all that? I think there's a twofold purpose that drives Paul. You take it from this salutation we study here today, and then just go through the different epistles he writes to the churches and gather what is the heartbeat of Paul. What is his purpose? And I think it's twofold. It's ultimately the glory of God. He's doing what he's doing and suffering what he's suffering for God's glory. But it's also very personal to him. The glory of God will be received and reached when God's people are saved and sanctified. So it's God's glory as this umbrella, but it's the particular personal ministry of reaching God's chosen people with the gospel, not just initially, but through their growth and their own sanctification, their own process of looking more and more like Christ. Under the greater purpose of God's glory, the ministry of the church then, as shown by Paul, is for the sake of God's chosen people, otherwise known as the elect. Let's look at the passage together and see how this introduction begins to show us a great, a wonderful, uh, an authoritative example for Christian ministry in Paul. Notice verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now these two phrases that modify or describe Paul, the servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant of God, this is the doulos of God, the slave of God, the bondservant of God. He is owned by God. He is directed by God. He gets his instructions from his sovereign God. He is the servant, the slave of God in this sense. This is a humble title used. 
and it's used only of a few in Scripture. And, but they're important, an important few, the prophets in the Old Testament. Moses is referred to as a, a bondservant or a slave of God. Joshua is referred to in the same way. Uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah, which is a forecast of Christ, is called the slave or the bondservant of God. James, Peter, Jude all refer to themselves as the slaves or bondservants, the doulases of God. That's one bought, one owned, and one directed by God. It's a title of humility to call yourself slave of God. Now compare that to the next title that he refers to himself as. An apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostolos, and, uh, and quite differently than a bondservant, is one who is a representative of royalty, a representative of a king, representative of one who is noble. Uh, so that gives you a sense of nobility if you are that person's representative. I don't mean just one who follows someone, but you're their representative. You're commissioned specially to represent that person who is gone or not in that location. So you become really, in a sense, figuratively equal with that person while you're there as you represent them. An apostolos is an authoritative title. It is a title of honor. It is one who has received a commission from a king. So he is a slave, yes, of God, but he is also an authoritative representative of Christ. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has a sense of humility about his calling, but he also recognizes he comes with authority that God has granted. God has entrusted him with a message that he must Safe keep. But we realize from many other portions of Scripture that Paul rests upon the ministry, the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit to carry out this authoritative office. In fact, the authority itself comes from the empowerment of God through his Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul speaks with this humble authority, and we see why he speaks, what drives him, what his purpose is for the sake of God's elect. In, 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 Literally, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, let's understand what is meant here. This is so crucial to recognizing the purpose of not only this book, but the purpose of ministry itself. Why do we minister? Why do we carry out the apostolic ministry as God has given it to us? We do so for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? Well, that literally means the chosen ones. Now, let's just look at it from two different angles because it's an important question to answer. The word comes, appears too often in Scripture just to blow it off. It's, just, it's too prevalent. You can't find a portion of Scripture that is not either the word itself chosen or elect is used or the concept where God is clearly putting a special hand on people of his choice. You just have to basically cut half your Bible out to try to describe what God's workings are without election. Well, the technical definition for election refers to those people that God has chosen for salvation. Not based on anything that they have done, but based on his own good pleasure, according to his good wisdom. Now think of just a few verses that I'll recite for you that show forth this truth of election. Speaking to Moses in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's his sovereign choice and election to do what he wants. That is his godness that he can do this. Unless we think this is something we have done, that he somehow looked ahead and saw that Tony would somehow uh, obey and then, then elected me. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's not based on something you have done, is what he's saying. So don't be proud. Don't start boasting. It's his work, his choice, according to the good pleasure of his own will. And you would imagine that the Apostle Paul, who wrote Titus, of course, also would mimic this in his other books, and he sure does in Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, Paul writes, conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then, Paul writes? He knows what people are thinking. What shall I say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is a quote from Exodus 33. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God, Paul writes? Will what the molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? The doctrine itself is, is throughout the scriptures, and it describes the glory of God and his choice, his sovereign choice. So technically, when we speak of election, we're talking about those who God specially chooses. Just like Paul writes to the Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's the technical sense of election, which is true through and through scripture. Now, understand that the practical sense that Paul is using this in is only slightly different in this. Paul doesn't know who are actually elect. He knows it's true that God has done this, but he doesn't have some kind of apostolic x-ray vision that sees an E somewhere stamped on you, but rather he practically speaks in terms of the fact that he has been given a commission, he goes forth and does it, and then God will bring his elect to salvation, to growth and faith. This is what he means when he speaks of ministering for the sake of the elect. He ministers for the church. And he knows that God will bring forth salvation in those whom he has chosen. In fact, to prove that Paul followed this philosophy to a T, he was in Jerusalem preaching to some of the hardest hearts he had ever preached to 
uh, his fellow Jews. He was preaching and they were getting mad. And he was preaching and he, they were getting mad. And then we read that he and Barnabas, in the, after their sermon is concluding, listen to what Acts says exactly and you'll see the purpose of Paul played out. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly in Acts 13. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Paul says to the crowd, since you thrust it aside and judge for yourself unworthy of, judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So we're, we're done talking to you. We're going to go to the Gentiles now, Paul says. You're not listening. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this in their midst, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So Paul's driving force is, the elect are going to come. And I want to be the one preaching when they come. They're going to come. I mean, this is a given. And this just gives him confidence. And this gives him surety that he should do what he's told to do because God will not lose one that he has appointed to salvation. This makes all the difference in ministry for this reason. I believe that we are often tempted to compromise our message or compromise our means because we think we have more to do with it than we do. You see, if it's true, though, what the Scripture says, and I believe it is, we need to voraciously follow what the Scripture says about proclaiming Christ and be very confident that God will bring every one of his children to faith through that means. Every one of them. Not one will be lost because we messed up methodologically by following the Scriptures by being somewhat irrelevant at times. This is a beautiful encouragement to those who are serving in ministry, us in the church, all of us here. He narrows it down so we understand what our role is to proclaim Christ, to preach his word, to live Christ before people and recognize that's the means quantified in the act of preaching the message itself that God uses to bring his elect to salvation. It's sort of like uh, yesterday, I lost my little day planner. I still use a day planner. I can't get into those, 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 what do you call those things? Those little, whatever, yeah, those PDA things. They're good for some, but they're no good for me. So I still have a day planner. I turn it over and I have highlighted what my schedule is. I look at the whole month, I could see it. Problem was, yesterday at the leadership training class, I put it somewhere in that room that we're teaching the class in. I remember putting it in there, but I couldn't remember where. And there's all sorts of music stands in there. And I knew I put it on one of the music stands, and then I moved the music stands. So I went back to my office and I was pulling my hair out trying to figure out where this day planner was because I had appointments that I had to remember for this week. And I couldn't remember, couldn't remember. Then I stopped and I thought to myself, okay, I know I had it when I went to that room and I didn't after. So I narrowed it down to that one room for my search. That's much less daunting than the whole South building. Brothers and sisters, the reaching the world for Christ is narrowed down to doing what God gives us to do and he will bring he will save them. We need to do things. We need to act. We need to go forth. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves in thinking that God needs our help here. He's given us some clarity about how we should be simple in living and preaching the message and how he will, as many as are appointed, bring them to eternal life. You know, when we send out people from our church to proclaim the message of Christ both by word and deed, we're doing so for the sake of the elect in those places. Uh, we have sent forth the Hirschbergers in part because of the elect in Bulgaria that God will bring to salvation. 
We have partnered with the files in India because we believe the elect are in India and will come to faith through the preaching of the word of God that is sent forth there through the church here sending and other churches all over the world sending and the church right there in India propagating itself because we believe God will bring every one of his elect that way. The McGinty's in South Africa are there for the sake of the elect in South Africa. The Vaughns and the Youngs and the teams we send to Juarez, they go there for the sake of the elect in those places. That's why they go. The Moldova team, back with us and looking spry as they can be. They went to Moldova for the sake of the elect in Moldova. Doesn't mean they know everyone who's the elect in Moldova. They go to preach the gospel. They go to live the gospel. They go to serve showing the gospel for the sake of the elect, those who God has appointed. Our ministry is for the sake of the elect. In fact, let's look at that in more depth. The ministry being for the sake of the elect. In verse 1 again, we see that uh, in, this ministry entails the following with regard to the sake of the elect. It's just not that general sake, but there's particulars about it. Verse 1, we see the elect coming to faith in Christ. This is what it means to minister for the sake of the elect, that they come to Christ. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. You see that? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul ministers that those who God has appointed, so that those who God has appointed would come to faith in Christ. This is why he ministers. God gives faith. It's what God uses to apply the work of Christ. Uh, Faith itself is a gift, and it's brought about by the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit's ministry. Paul preaches, the Holy Spirit ministers, and God gives faith to those he has appointed faith to be given to. Remember what it says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift. What's the gift? That you're saved by grace through faith. Faith is a gift. If it's not a gift, it's a work because you have to conjure it and we're not saved by works. Faith itself is the instrument God uses to apply the work of Christ, and he even gives you that. We can't even take credit for saying, but I believed in you, God. The fact that you say that you believed in him is an evidence that God has given you faith because you couldn't believe in him otherwise. You couldn't conjure it up in your natural state. So Paul ministers so that the elect would come to faith in Christ. How does it happen I've been talking in generalities about living and preaching and and, uh, ministering for the gospel. But look at verse 3 and you'll see. And at the appointed or the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Uh, The act of preaching is actually the means God has ordained to bring his elect to salvation. Now, understand, preaching is the generality for the teaching of the apostolic message of the gospel. It is quantified by what happens from the pulpit in informal settings, no doubt. But it also has to do with the fruit of preaching, you taking that message and sharing that same message and privately proclaiming it to others. But recognize that ultimately, preaching has to be in place for people to be saved. This doesn't happen out there and I feel different all of a sudden. No, the preaching of the word goes forth according to God's word and the the ministry of the Holy Spirit regenerates people according to his will. It's the preaching of the word. In fact, this has always been something that has been a source of wonderment for Paul as he thinks of the treasures that have been given to jars of clay and he even talks about the folly of preaching. And I know what he means. I I really know what he means. Uh, The folly that God would take someone like me or someone like you in a given place and and speak his truth through that person, that itself is a manifestation of the sovereignty of God over salvation. That he would use such foolishness as 
the foolish one, to bring forth this message. And this starts in every level in our church, but the preaching is, got, is so central to it, and the sacrament is the visible evidence or sign of what is preached, the message of Christ, saving us from our sins by his death on the cross. This is applied in every family as a family talks over what has been preached and taught and read in the scriptures. This has to do with you sharing this with people that you come in contact with. And this is why church planting must be our priority in missions and personally as a church. Because we have to establish places where the word of God is preached regularly. And so when we go to other places, it's not just to go get converts. It's rather to establish a church that will have preaching of the gospel there. That's the purpose. That's how we serve the elect. But look also in verse 1. It's not just the initial coming to faith in Christ, but it's about growing in knowledge. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So their faith, but also their knowledge of the truth. God gives the gift of faith in a moment, in an instance. But knowledge of the truth comes over time and begins to make sense of our faith. It answers the question, What happened to me way back then when I heard that or I I responded to that or I recognized something I didn't recognize? What happened? Well, as you grow, knowledge helps shed light on that conversion experience, as it's called. Uh, But you'll never be assured of that conversion or assured of your salvation if you're not growing in knowledge. So knowledge is also part of serving God's elect for the sake of God's elect. I would strongly recommend that we continue to emphasize discipleship studying the word, getting into the word, talking the word over, because I think most people, are there many people that will come to these doors who think they know Christ, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. The only way they'll know, though, is if they continue to confront Jesus through the scriptures, his people, the spirit ministering. And over time, in a discipleship context, they'll come to a full assurance of their salvation. I would call this, in a sense, a discipleship kind of evangelism. I'm I'm always excited when I hear someone tell me they initially have trusted Christ. But the next immediate response ought to be, Let's have them now growing in the word, sitting under the word regularly so they can come to a confidence and encouragement that it is true in their life because God's now starting to change them in their actions. They're starting to follow what they're saying they believe. It moves a person from profession of faith to a knowledge and an analysis of what has happened and a growing appreciation of it. But there's another aspect that is entailed in serving or ministering for the sake of the elect. It's the elect growing in godliness. It's not just coming to faith and getting smarter and knowing more. It's living what you know. Look at the last part of verse 1 again. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Accords means that it's in harmony with godliness. That is their knowledge. They're coming to Christ and they're growing in the knowledge of coming to Christ. That's in harmony with becoming godly or being pious or changing. There's an agreement between knowledge and godliness. It's just not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but it's knowledge that transforms and makes us godly. We minister for the sake of the elect, that they come to faith, that they know more about God, that they would grow also in their practical godliness. When an actor studies to play a part in a play or a drama, they have to know that character. They have to study that character to be that character. As we grow in knowledge of Christ, we become more like Christ by his grace and by his ministry of the Holy Spirit. Biblical knowledge coupled with the Holy Spirit's ministry will change our conduct over time. Godliness or a genuine piety or a sweet reverence towards God, you might say. 
A simple but deep love for God. That comes with knowing Jesus more. Regular exposure to his word, to the preaching of his word, helps this, grows this. But also notice in verses 2 down to the end of verse 4, the elect a growing in confidence and encouragement. That's another part of ministering for the sake of the elect, that they come to faith, that they grow in their knowledge of God, that they grow in their godliness, and they grow in confidence and encouragement. And look at how encouraging these words are. For the sake of their elect and their knowledge of the truth, in verse 1, which accords with godliness, now verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Have you ever met a person who you see doing something publicly and you're sure in your mind they're winging it? Have you ever sat in a college class like I have and uh, the person's super smart and super gifted, but they never have any notes or anything, and you're thinking to yourself after about the fifth class, they're just talking off the top of their head right now. They're totally winging it. Uh, they, they don't have a plan. They don't know where they're going. Kind of like the Matrix movies. The first one looked like the guy had a plan. Now, the next two was obvious. He had no clue what he was doing. He was just trying to rake in some money. Right? If you've seen it, you know what I'm saying. It makes no, you think there's a grand plan, and there's no plan. Okay, God does not carry out the salvation of his elect this way. He knows exactly where he's going. He has planned it, and it says here, a promise before the ages began. God is not winging it. There's no surprises to him. He's not freaked out because thus and so acted a certain way. In fact, he's ordained whatsoever comes to pass. This is confidence to us that God is orchestrating these events. He's working and moving these events. I can go to a place and preach to everyone and not one person can come, might come and I can still be confident that I've done God's will that day. And he'll bring who he will bring because he has promised before the ages began and at the proper time, uh, the appointed time, he manifested it in the preached word. The hope of eternal life. That's what we can have with confidence because we see how God works, how he controls this, how he has ordained the ends and also the means which are us preaching, us teaching, us living, us sharing. He's ordained both the ends and the means, and the means are us living it out, what we believe. Promise before the ages began in verse 2, and the proper time manifested. This is a reference to what God had determined in uh, in the sacred Godhead himself. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 13, 20, through the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete. God is not, my brothers and sisters, making it up as he goes. That's not the God we serve, not the God who saved us. The plan of his salvation for the elect, you can see clearly here, it was committed to before time. It was revealed or made known through the revelation of Christ in his word. And therefore, in light of that, it will be fulfilled in the future. So we go forth with great confidence with what God has given us. I close with these words from Paul speaking of preaching. 1 Corinthians 1.18. I have several things on my, on my wall in various places. And this is a verse I have on the wall in my office when I walk out to remind myself of this important a truth from his word. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 1 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach 
to save those who believe. Ministry for the sake of God's elect entails the elect coming to faith in Christ, growing in that faith and their understanding of that faith, growing in godliness, which is a natural output of their saving faith, and then growing in their confidence. And when a confident people of God go forth into the world, that's a powerful element that the world cannot, cannot overcome. A confident people, an encouraged people, a stable people are willing to die for their Savior and then become the very means God uses to propagate the church. A confident church is a multiplying church, an affecting church, a transforming church. So all the way from the doctrine of God's election, we come to confidence that makes us, compels us to go and preach the message. No one ought to ever stay with this message in these doors and not speak of it when they walk out. In fact, you of all people, we of all people, should go forth with greater confidence than anyone else that we've got the message, it's Christ crucified. He closes with grace and peace in his introduction. Grace and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace being God's unmerited favor, his glorious favor to us sinners. We're sinners, yet he's kind to us to save us in this way. Grace to you, Titus, in light of all I've said to you, Titus, in light of the ministry you will have here in this church. And peace, that open, transparent, satisfying relationship you can have with God because your sins, the wall of dividing has been taken down and you can have access to God. Titus, grace be with you. Peace be with you. Be confident. Grow. See, for the sake of the elect, all the ministry that is there for you to do. I will be with you, Titus, he says, in, in, in essence. I am moving this. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a wonderful book that gives great confidence to his church. And we are his church. Amen for that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ministry that you've given us. Lord, help us to remember our purpose. That it's, uh, this ministry is for your glory. And your glory is had by the sake, for the sake of your elect, being saved, being grown in the faith, being sanctified by godliness that you work in us, by confidence that you give us, that you are in control of this, that you are working whatsoever comes to pass, all things together for your good. Lord, I pray that we would see the practical reality of the message of your sovereignty over these things, and we would live them in our lives, and we would share them with all the people that you give us, uh, the great blessing of coming in contact with. And I pray that we would be used by you to further your glory on this earth, that the nations might know Christ, the result of your changed people in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.